poem on the occasion of the midterm election. Dream Brazil is a wash, too expensive. Dream Antarctica again, and the cold feels good. And I look all right there in the big blue coat. I never wanted to impress anybody, so I kept it unremarkable. The plain truth is not enough now to change the empire into a flower. It is already a hummingbird in endless loop. No, no, they say, there's power still in children and old people. There's power in swarming the neighborhood and refusing to die. There's power in songs. It's we who are powerless. For you, O democracy, come. I will make the continent indissoluble. I will make the most splendid race the sun ever shone upon. I will make divine magnetic lands with the love of comrades, with the lifelong love of comrades. I will plant companionship thick as trees along all the rivers of America and along the shores of the Great Lakes and all over the prairies. I will make inseparable cities with their arms about each other's necks by the love of comrades, by the manly love of comrades. For you, these from me, O oh democracy, to serve you, ma femme. For you, I am trilling these songs. If American democracy fails, the ultimate cause will not be a foreign invasion or the big power of a big money or the greed and dishonesty of some elected officials or a military coup or the internal communist, socialist, fascist takeover that keeps some Americans awake at night. It will happen because we, you and I, became so fearful of each other, of our differences and of the future, that we unraveled the civic community on which democracy depends, losing our power to resist all that threatens it and call it back to its highest form. It has been a strange election season, and there's so much more to go. Months ago, who would have thought that someone who wears the label socialist so proudly would be a serious contender for the Democratic Party presidential nomination? Who would have thought that the Republican contest would have played out as it has? governors and senators dropping out as they fail to build momentum, and the current leader, a businessman and reality show host. The candidacy of Donald Trump and the aspects of our culture that has, it has brought into wider attention has baffled, bewildered, and sometimes terrified so many of us. I know I'm not alone in this. I hear it in our conversations and see it in your Facebook posts. I see the movement he represents causing fear and sometimes heartbreak, and I need to speak to it. Now, there are very strict rules about churches and electoral politics. There are certain IRS rules that I and we as a church as a whole need to follow to maintain our tax-exempt status. Now, the church is relatively free to engage in advocacy and lobbying on issues that we care about, and we do that 
there are wonderful social justice projects here that sometimes work to convince elected leaders and others who hold power to change policy. That is well within our rights with our tax status. But it is much more complicated when it comes to electoral politics. We cannot do anything that implies endorsement of a particular candidate by our congregation. That includes putting up yard signs on our property, distributing campaign literature, making announcements for the benefit of specific candidates, officially endorsing someone, or me telling you who to vote for in my role as your minister. As a church, we cannot financially support a candidate or a political action committee. In our business activity, we must be impartial. There are benefits and drawbacks to all of this, but it's the reality that we live with. This is not to say that we as individual church members can't have conversations about who we're voting for over coffee or at other times. We just need to make sure that it's clear that we're expressing our opinions, not the opinion of the church. And almost all of the time, that's pretty obvious. So even with all of these restrictions, I feel like I need to speak to our political reality. Last November, a study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It showed that since 1998, the life expectancy for white people between ages 45 and 54 has been falling, that the mortality rate has been increasing by half a percent a year. This rise in mortality is not happening in other countries or in other racial or ethnic groups in our country. The co-author of the study, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, said that this means that two million extra people have died since 1998. As the authors drilled into the data, they were surprised by the cause of these extra deaths. This increasing morta mortality rate was, was mostly among white people with a high school education or less, and the deaths were overwhelmingly suicides, alcohol and drug-related deaths, and deaths from alcohol-related liver disease. Many called them deaths of despair. Perhaps you've heard about this study or have witnessed this reality. Perhaps you've, you've known that the abuse of opiates is reaching unprecedented levels, especially in white communities, that 90% of the people who try heroin now are white, that they often come to it because it's cheaper than the prescription opiates they've become dependent on. Perhaps you or someone you love is living this story. The authors speculate that financial strain is why these less educated white people are dying of despair, that our economy has shifted. Because of trade policy and technological advances, the good jobs that would allow them to provide for families, live comfortably, and save for retirement have evaporated. They are not living the American dream they were promised. They are despairing. But financial strain can't be this whole story. Otherwise, we would see the same despair in other groups. I think this has to do with race. White people who exist in this culture are imbued with white, with white supremacy, and they live with internalized racial superiority. People socialized as white have been taught that they are better than people of color in subtle and not so subtle ways for their entire lives, for our entire life, for my entire life. 
We cannot escape it. It is in me, it is in all of us who are socialized as white, mostly unconsciously, but it is there, poisoning people, poisoning relationships. This internalized racial superiority must contribute to the deaths of despair. It is a poison that, that so many of us carry. So as this world shifts, I believe that this internalized racial, racial superiority is poisoning us. I can imagine that, especially a white person despairing over the broken promises of the American dream, who sees people of color being successful, especially a black president, it can churn up that internalized racial superiority. If they can succeed, why can't I? I've been taught since birth that I am better than they are, and here they are better than me. And I don't know if this is all conscious, but I know that it's there. And the poison is activated, and perhaps the next step is depression. Perhaps then the way to manage the depression and despair is drugs and alcohol and self-harm. Again, this, isn't, this wasn't part of the study. The study didn't investigate the racial aspects of all of this, but the realities of race and racism must be part of why the diseases of despair are quickly increasing among white people and not other groups. Back to the election. One of my real fears about this election cycle is the shift in the Republican Party. Traditionally, it was a broad coalition of social conservatives and moderates, fiscal conservatives and moderates, people who believe in smaller government, libertarians, and many others. I know there are members of this church who are Republicans, and one can be Unitarian, Universalist, and Republican. Voting Republican can be a good and ethical choice. What I am fearful of is the shift in the party towards becoming a party of white nationalism. Now, this is not a shift supported by all Republicans. After that party lost the most recent presidential election, party leaders recognized that they needed to make inroads among people of color. They suggested working on comprehensive immigration reform and other policy proposals that might broaden their base of support. But those voices aren't the loudest right now. Then came the leading candidate calling all Mexicans rapists and saying he would deport all undocumented immigrants. He said Muslims should be banned from entering our country. Protesters at his rallies have been physically attacked. He did not immediately disavow the endorsement of the Ku Klux Klan. His rhetoric has been echoed by other Republican candidates in calls to surveil Muslim communities and calls to end the resettlement of Muslim refugees. This rhetoric, this nationalism, this white nationalism, appeals to some of those at risk for deaths of despair. They, they are among the loudest supporters of these white nationalist policies. I'm terrified of the Republican Party becoming a party of white nationalism because I know what can happen when nationalism, ethnic nationalism, and politics mix. As many of you know, I spent a few years living in Serbia in the former Yugoslavia. I was there, for I was there 15 years after the war that tore what was Yugoslavia, a multi-ethnic, religiously diverse state, 
apart into seven small countries that are largely ethnically and religiously homogenous. I don't want to be overdramatic, but I also know that all of my Yugoslav friends and colleagues never thought that could happen there. They told me stories of how everyone got along until the politicians weaponized nationalism to serve their own ends. One of the ways that the politicians and religious leaders in the former Yugoslavia stoked nationalism was through national myths. They discarded the complicated truths of history and replaced them with simple stories that served their interests. In Serbia, it was a myth about a battle in 1389. Here, it's slogans like, Make America Great Again. Make America Great Again is a slogan used by Donald Trump and Make America Whole Again was a slogan that Hillary Clinton used for about a week. Our statements of myth, not policy, not history. Neither of these candidates name when America was great or whole. They are constructing a mythic past to return to, not referencing a historic moment. And these slogans appeal only to a certain segment of our, of our community. Perhaps the segment dealing with, dealing with despair rooted in financial strain and internalized racial superiority. Perhaps others who, would, who see the past, past as a time that was simpler and easier, even though it never was simple or easy. For so many, America never was great. And for so many, America never was whole. And this nationalism is so seductive. It gives life meaning. It helps us feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. It is a way to escape despair. Chris Hedges is a former war correspondent, wrote a, and he wrote a whole book on this called War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. It's a powerful book, one that was invaluable to me as I tried to make sense of the nationalist wars in the former Yugoslavia and the post-traumatic stress that everyone I knew there was living with. He writes, to those who swallow the nationalist myth, life is transformed. The collective glorification permits people to abandon their usual preoccupation with petty concerns of daily life. They can abandon even self-preservation and their desire to see themselves as players in a momentous historical drama. This is accepted even at the expense of self-annihilation. We can lose ourselves in nationalism. We can lose ourselves in our national myths. We can lose our pain, our petty concerns, our despair, the small anxieties that compose our lives in nationalism for a while. It is ultimately a poison, destroying culture, destroying relationships, destroying integrity. It can come for us all, separating us into groups with rigid boundaries, groups that are fearful of one another. It's a pattern that often ends in violence that we believe serves a higher purpose. Now, I'm not predicting nationalist violence on the scale of civil war, but I do think our political discourse is terribly degraded. We've seen violence at political rallies, on the news. Our Muslim friends and neighbors right here in Kalamazoo asked the local government to affirm religious pluralism, to affirm it as a value of our community. 
the fact that this is even a question, that there is a need for such a resolution, is unnerving. As Beth read earlier, Quaker educator Parker Palmer proclaims, if American democracy fails, the ultimate cause will not be a foreign invasion or the power of big, big money or the greed and dishonesty of some elected officials or a mil- military coup or the internal communist, socialist, fascist takeover that keeps some Americans awake at night. It will happen because we, you and I, became so fearful of each other of our differences and of the future, that we unraveled the civic community on which democracy depends, losing our power to resist all that threatens it and call it back to its highest form. So what do we do? How do we create love and hope in the midst of fear? How do we call our democracy back to its highest form? We build up our civil society. We remember that there is power in us. There's power still in children and old people. There's power in swarming the the neighbors and refusing to die. There's power in songs. So we do this by supporting the church, local nonprofits, the PTA, political organizations, the Rotary, the book club, really any organization with our time and talent and treasure. And we invite those around us to join in. Nationalism takes root when we lack social connections, when we grow to fear our neighbors because we don't know them. It grabs hold when we lack commitment to the institutions that make up civil society. We also need to tell the stories that show that nationalism is false. We tell the stories that dismantle fear. And the former Yugoslavia, this meant telling the stories of people of all ethnicities acting with compassion. Here, it is stories like Muslim communities sending bottled water to Flint or raising money for Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston after the shooting last year. This means that we speak up when when someone says, all Muslims are this way or all immigrants are that way and tell the stories that explode those lies. What else do we do? We promise to stay to work for love and justice. I know every election season people say, if so-and-so wins, I'm leaving the country. (laughs) Canada is a popular choice. (laughs) The poet we heard earlier proposed Brazil or Antarctica. And if our worst case scenarios happen, however we imagine them as individuals, each of us will be needed here more than ever. All of us, with all of our power and energy and influence, will be needed if we are to overcome fear, despair, overcome nationalism and division. If worst-case scenarios come to pass, this world will be crying out for the people of love and the people of hope that we aspire to be. This world will be crying out for us to be co-creators of community in which the weak as well as the strong can flourish, and love and power collaborate, and justice and mercy can have their day. And of course, when election day arrives, we need to vote. We need to think about policy, think about our values, and vote, and encourage others to vote as well. 
I'm closing my sermon today with a segment of the final discourse of Kwaja Monodin Chisti, a South, African, a South Asian Muslim philosopher and imam. One month before his death in the 13th century, he said to his students, love all and hate none. Mere talk of peace will avail you not. Mere talk of God and religion will not take you far. Bring out all the latent powers of your being and reveal the full magnificence of your immortal self. Be overflowing with peace and joy and scatter them wherever you are and wherever you go. Be a blazing fire of truth. Be a beautiful blossom of love. Be a soothing balm of peace. With your spiritual light, dispel the darkness of ignorance. Dissolve the clouds of discord and war and spread goodwill, peace, and harmony among the people. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.